Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hey, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women and Manufacturing. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back manufacturing or expand their manufacturing in America. I also run a global supply chain consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help clients with global supply chain projects and where I also do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their insights and their experiences with us. Today, I am thrilled to welcome my very special guest, Jennifer Clement, the president of Complete Holdings, the U.S. partner of Complete Manufacturing and Distribution, also known as CMD in China. We're going to be talking about sourcing and manufacturing in China today, and I'm just so excited about this. She has a lot of expertise and a lot of things to share with us. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much, Rosemary. Great to be here. I know you lived in Shanghai for a while and you have this great background, educational background and so forth. Can you give us a little summary of your background? Sure. So I spent the last 20 years, Rosemary, in supply chain work, started my career at Johnson Controls, pivoted then to Rockwell, also in international roles. And for the last six years, I've worked for complete manufacturing and distribution. And from 2015 until 2019, worked in Shanghai and covering China as well as Southeast Asia with global sourcing, quality management opportunities, and more. We're a full-service consultancy. And you had your family with you in Shanghai, is that right? Yeah, I sure did. When we moved there, my little one was just starting first grade, and the other one was starting third grade. So they, they really grew up in China. Wow. And they went to school in China and everything? Do they speak Mandarin? Yes, yes. So international schools are great in Shanghai, and they were reading, writing, and speaking Chinese much better than their parents. Wow, that's fantastic. What a great opportunity. That's just wonderful. And you went to Marquette University, right? That's where my son went to school, too. I did. I did. So both for undergraduate and my MBA in finance as well. Okay. All right. Well, that certainly positions you well for for this kind of international work. Describe for us a little bit more about what CMD does and how you help your customers with global sourcing and manufacturing, because I'm not sure the audience understands how companies like yours secure manufacturing in China and, and what you have to do to maintain it. Yeah, great question. So we've been around for 30 years, and we cover about 30 different industries. So our, our clients typically have, they have deep experience in Asia. They know how difficult it is, and they need boots on the ground support for working with their factory network, managing quality over time. And, and now in today's environment, diversifying that supply base has become a really strategic issue, especially in, in light of first starting with tariffs and starting with COVID and the, the pressures it's placed on shutting plants down. And of course, power outages. It's, the supply chain just keeps breaking in multiple ways. And it's our team's job on the ground to take care of our clients and their supply interests. About half of our business is sourcing and managing quality in Asia for export. And the other half of our business are brands who are interested in selling in Asia's rapidly growing markets. Uh, so if I were a manufacturer of some kind of product, I could come to you and you could help us establish a market in China and a sales yes. and distribution channel. Okay. 
And the other way, which is we all know is pretty common in manufacturing these days, is to take certain subassemblies or look for products or even completely finished products and find a place to manufacture them in China. So you help with that, right? Yes. Yeah, we sure do. Okay, that's terrific. So a a customer would come to you and say, I have this product that I've designed or at least partially designed or an idea or a concept. Can you help us find a location? So what do you do from there? A typical sourcing initiative is going to first involve a business case and figuring out which geography really makes sense. So if the client, for example, plans on selling the product in China as well, then certainly in China for China is worth a conversation. However, if that product is exclusively for export, then, you know, as we build the business case, we might look at, okay, which country makes sense from a labor perspective, availability of natural resources, and and of course, tariffs, because based on what we've seen over the months, we really don't see the tariff situation changing at this time. So, and tariffs can be pretty steep. And then you add to that anti-dumping and countervailing duties, it can be a real problem. So, Really, the first step is working with the owner and figuring out what does that business case look like and which geography makes sense. Or does an onshoring work or Mexico? When you're talking about, yeah, when you're talking about geography, it's not just China. You help customers place manufacturing or find sources throughout Asia and also Mexico. Is that what you said? Yeah, we focus on Asia. So, but you know, given if we really look at the content as they build that business strategy, Mexico may make sense for really high volume in certain key industries. Automotive, certainly. You know, if I if they were going to come to us with uh, as, as a tier two or tier three supplier, Mexico is built out for automotive and has been so for the last couple of decades. So probably made more, especially with the logistics challenges everyone's having, probably makes more sense to locate that business in Mexico. And we would steer the client in that direction. However, China, as we talked about this the other day, highly vertically integrated. And what that means is for a complex assembly, say we have a client, for example, that has an assembly with over 300 parts. All of those can be sourced in China. And you don't have to go outside of China to find the bits and pieces. So China has come a long way in 20 years. You can build almost anything in China's markets and certainly find the pieces and parts that you need for a successful program. So when you talk about vertical integration, you were just saying, so it's got a lot of component parts that all fit together and build the assembly and build and build and build until you have the final product. So all of those suppliers can be in one place or in China anyway. First of all, there are regions within China, right? So if you had electronics products, you might go to, to the Pearl River Valley, Shenzhen, Dongguan, Guangzhou. And if you had a different kind of product, you might go to a different region. Is that so? That would be kind of part of the first selection process, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, one of our clients is in the lighting industry. So, they need access to all of the sub assemblies for electronics, the LEDs, and certainly Shenzhen, Zhongguang, as, as you had stated. We have another client in the glass industry. So, Qingdao, where the famous Tsingtao Brewery is located, set up by the Germans 150 years ago. And all the glass factories in China are kind of clustered around Qingdao. Then Ningbo, uh, famous for castings and heavy, heavy um, forging and casting parts. And in Anhui, in the interior, where we see a little bit lower cost labor, 
that's where you're going to see some contract manufacturers doing more complex assemblies. So yeah, it's it's a real, it's a fun regional discussion about, you know, where it makes sense for any given product or component. Yeah, and to tie that back to vertical manufacturing. So if you're doing an electronics product, all of those electronic components are made in the Pearl River Valley, for example, all the way up through uh, wiring harnesses and, you know, all kinds of things that you might need for a final say a consumer electronics product, maybe a hair dryer or a blender or something like that. So the the whole vertical integration, all the component parts are there. Okay, so in one place. So there's, um, it's my understanding there are clusters of these kind of um, industries all across China where you might start, but it's not absolute. So you can still get electronics in Pudong or, you know, some other place in China. It's just, that the clusters are in certain places, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and we know now that because of the tariffs, as you mentioned, um, these are the 301 penalty tariffs, goods coming in from China that were initiated during the Trump administration. And then you also mentioned anti-dumping and countervailing duties. I don't want, they're, that, that's pretty technical subjects. So I don't want to get too much into that, but those are additional penalty kind of tariffs that might be placed on goods coming in the U.S., right? So to avoid that, you you consider other countries, and why is that different? I mean, don't you have to pay tariffs on stuff coming in from other countries? Yeah, so that's why the you know in terms of for a sourcing program to do that upfront business case is pretty strategic. So when when a client's considering which geography to work with, the first thing we're going to look at is material availability and the skill set of the local region, can they handle the complexity of the product? And also, of course, the availability of bits and parts and pieces that can go into that final assembly. And then lastly, what the business case for tariff looks like. So as you leave China and head into Southeast Asia, those regions are certainly far less tariffs than what we might see in China. So like you said, out of the gate, 26%. It's kind of a general rate for industrial goods out of China. India, that might just be 7% for the same category. Out of Vietnam, it might be zero. So Taiwan, also zero. So it, you really have to look at, it's very technical, and you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Oh, gotcha. So is it true that a lot of companies are leaving China and going to other, uh, other Asian countries? Do you see a lot of that migration? Yes and no. So according to the American Chamber of Commerce, more than 75% of organizations that are working with a China supply base are planning to stay. So, and majority of those also have in China for China interest because of quick pace of the way that market's growing. So if you, if you look at the data, it supports a pretty strong business case for staying in China, especially if you're selling there. For other organizations, their strategic issues include diversifying, whether that be an N plus one strategy So they're going to continue to build in China, but also standardize work across another factory outside of China. So they've got levers to pull. And I think, you know, if there's one thing hand over heart we've learned during COVID is the importance of having options because the supply chain just keeps breaking in so many different ways. And whether it be a power grid related shutdown, whether it be now COVID lockdowns are are a big issue. Shenzhen, most manufacturing facilities are closed in Shenzhen. And so uh, we see port closures. So there's so many challenges. And so having those options, it's amazing to me how many clients come and they're still single source. 
and how, how there's such an opportunity there to de-risk. So we're seeing a lot of movement into Southeast Asia. That has its challenges, which love to share more. And also reshoring, a subject I know near and dear to both of our hearts, and as well as um, Mexico when, when it makes sense. But yeah, there's some, we, we're finding some terrific suppliers to work with over the last decade in Southeast Asia that have some fantastic capabilities as well. Really interesting to me because over the years, you know, the the strategy of most of our clients was simply to go to China and set up shop in China, uh, find sources in China. It was all about China because it was a low cost country. But I, I think the pandemic certainly changed the thought process for sure. But I think, you know, my experience is that executives either got a lot smarter or they started thinking more analytically about that strategy. And instead of simply placing all of their sourcing um, and manufacturing in China, now they're really thinking worldwide. So, you know, should I keep some products in China for the Chinese market or the Asian market or because of the cost structures? Should I put some in Mexico, for example? Should I bring some back to the U.S. to serve the U.S. market? So there's an evolution, I think, in thinking about sourcing and global manufacturing that we've never seen before. So moving and shifting things out of China into these other countries, what kind of hurdles are there in some of the other countries? I know they're they're clearly not as sophisticated as China is in, in terms of manufacturing. Yeah, great question. So let's if we just let's take a case study with Vietnam, for example. We've got a number of clients that have dual systems running, so an N plus one, one in China, one in Vietnam. And it's really interesting because what we're finding is even when you back out tariffs and you take that product into Vietnam, it may be cost neutral at the end of the day, even though labor rates are a little better in Vietnam. But because, as we talked about earlier, the vertical integration may not be there. That is, I can't take that assembly and go into Vietnam and find all the bits and pieces and parts that I need for that assembly in Vietnam. I still may have to bring in a lighting LED system from China or a, casted, a specialty casted part from Ningbo. So I can do most of the, the labor and the assembly work in Vietnam, but I, but I may still need to bring in parts in China. And it's why we've seen so many Chinese factories invest in Vietnam. If you go to Vietnam today, you'll see Chinese factories everywhere. So, you know, they're very aware of what you need to do to be there, replicate the capability that we've seen and the quality level we've seen out of China in another market like Vietnam for having options and also to address the tariff situation. But at the end of the day, like I said, we're in many cases, it's, it's, it's about a break-even cost-neutral in case scenario. I um, worked with an uh, athletic shoe manufacturer, a big brand. I mean, they sent me to all of their factories in China and in Vietnam before the pandemic. What we found was the cost structure in Vietnam was lower than China. So in China, they were paying their workers $300 a month plus a bonus. And that was that was main factories in China. In Vietnam, they were only paying $200 a month plus a bonus. But when you looked at the productivity rates and the rework rates and the quality yep. issues, it was about the same. So, I mean, China was so much more productive and, and made much better products. So, you know, there's a trade-off there. And if you, I think if you don't look at all the dollars and cents and the total cost and really do a deep dive evaluation, you're not going to get a clear picture. And that's where companies like yours are so helpful in determining that. 
The other thing that I've heard about Vietnam is that there are only 95 million people, so they're kind of full up. You know, so many, so <laughs> many uh, businesses have moved, at least partially, from yeah. China to Vietnam, and there's not much room left. And they, too, had a horrendous problem with COVID. I mean, they just shut down a lot of factories yeah. and, and so forth there. And, of course, as you said, Shenzhen yeah. is being, being uh, shut down right now, right? So... Uh, here we are, yes. fast forward two years later, and we still have these major factory closures or, or area closures in China. So it's yes. worrisome. Yeah, We're also seeing that play out in logistics in Vietnam as well. So I've got a client right now called yesterday and said, look, we're, we're struggling at an additional several weeks delay to secure containers in Vietnam and get them out of port. So it's slow no matter where you go. Really difficult to find space. Capacity has certainly decreased. The large shipping companies are doing more business direct with their end customers, the large, large retailers that have the buying power to buy freight capacity direct, like the Costco's, the Home Depot's, um, the big box retailers. So Maersk, for example, one of the largest shipping companies in the world, used to allocate 50% to the middleman freight forwarder and 50% to direct end customers. In their end report, just published in December, that's going to now go to 70%. They're going to do 70% direct with end customers. So that takes a huge chunk of freight forward or capacity out of the market. So mid-market clients like we do business with generally buy from freight forwarders. And all of that capacity is now coming off the table. And we're starting to see that squeeze not only out of China, but also in, in smaller markets like Vietnam. Wow. Well, as, as we know, the pandemic certainly caused a, a huge increase in um, imports from China. We were all buying laptops and stuff while we were sitting at home, um, and that caused the container imbalance, too. So now we've got a whole bunch of containers in the U.S., and no way of getting them back to China because we're not exporting that much. So that container imbalance will take some time to work off as well. And then, of course, there's the logistics rates. <laughs> the cost has gone up just tremendously. I have a client that's paying 17 times more for a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles than they were two years ago. Just yeah. putting people out of business. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we see if we look at global container index, we saw pricing stabilize since August. But again, with large shippers taking freight forward or capacity off the table, I think, you know, it's our belief that we're going to start to see those rates creep up again. So, you know, it used to be you could ship a 40 foot container from Shanghai to LA for, you know, well under two grand. Now we're looking at, and then it popped up to rates of 27, 28, 29,000. We're, we're hovering right around 15 to 17 and change um, wow. to get a 40 foot container. And so it's still expensive. And then there's all the fees in port. So because of these delays with getting goods unloaded, waiting for truck or rail chassis, there's all these fees that our, our clients are, are struggling with because of the, the labor shortages in port to move goods around. So we're seeing some pretty creative strategies come up like, hey, instead of having distribution centers close to buyer markets, does it make sense to put a pop-up, a distribution center closer to port, for example? So we're seeing some pretty interesting things change in distribution management because of, we're, gonna see, we're in this for many more months um, before, like you said, the containers are going to get in the right place. 
and we've got the labor in order to move the goods around once it's on the ground. Yeah, I think that's a com- that's a component that most people don't consider, and that's it's not just about getting the shipments on the water. It's when it gets to the U.S. We don't have enough truck drivers. We don't have enough warehouse capacity. We don't have enough chassis. I mean, it's a huge logistics problem here in the U.S. as well, and that won't be correct. Worked on. Correct. For a while. Yeah. Very interesting. Yep. And yep. That's, that's a great example of creating a warehouse close to the port. That's a, a typical change in strategy kind of approach that I was talking about before. Never would have thought of that in the past. You know, we just didn't, mm-hmm. we weren't experiencing the pain in that way to have thought of those kind of solutions. So that's a terrific example. When companies start to have issues in China, and we all know that there are you know, all kinds of quality issues from time to time or shipping issues or scheduling issues like with the shutdowns. And how do you how do you address those kind of issues with the Chinese manufacturer? Great question. So a lot can get lost in translations. And we've we've had numerous clients come to us that are struggling opposite clock. Emails go in, but nothing comes out. And the communication has just over time goes dark. And often the biggest issues are around delivery and quality. So if I look at the last five clients that we've signed on in the last month, three out of the five are all related to really major quality issues. One, it was so bad. They're doing 100% inspection of all inbound goods into the U.S. And I walked into their manufacturing facility. They have skids of material piled to the ceiling. They have containers out in the parking lot renting space. And they have another warehouse renting space because they're backed up hundreds of skids through the inspection process on site, costing them millions of dollars in additional labor, temporary labor that's not well-trained to do all of this finished goods inspection stateside. This is in the U.S.? Is this in the U.S.? Uh Yes. Wow. And in in addition, what what really was, I, I found so amazing is they have 29 insurance violations related to goods that are stacked too close to doorways and in front of fire extinguishers, all of which waiting for incoming inspection. So our job is to say, time out. We're going to audit that supplier find out, do do multiple root cause analysis, figure out what's going on, spend two to three days on site and find out why the, the customer is requesting that certain changes are made to production, but the supplier might do some, some immediate interaction and interventions, but the changes aren't lasting. Quality has not been sustainable. So our team will go in, do a full audit, typically a two to three day process with our general manager and several senior quality engineers come out with, on average, 30 to 50 things that we'll prioritize that we feel would help circumvent the major quality problems, and then put that supplier on an improvement plan, if you will, and then follow up over time to ensure that the changes are sustainable. So this is really happening. And if I look at what what COVID's done, organizations can't travel. So there are executives who used to fly over quarterly to build the relationship with the supplier, make sure that they're holding their place in line for capacity with that supplier, get the quality that they're looking for. They can't make those quarterly business class trips anymore. So they're they're very dependent on a boots on the ground team to nurture the relationship with the supplier. Maybe the supplier's given up that capacity to another client. 
And that's why quality is eroded. So we there's a lot to learn with an on-site visit. So, so and your company has a, a boots on the ground in China, right? How about how many employees are there? So we have around 70. And those people so go out, the they're, they're checking on suppliers, they're helping customers in the U.S. confirm what's going on. Well, that's great. That's great news. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that completely fell apart for so many companies was supplier oversight in China during the pandemic. They're just, they couldn't go. They just couldn't go. So mm-hmm. you're, it's hit and miss whether you're going to get the products that you expect or when there are quality issues, how you, how you address those really a, a big issue. It's nice to know you have boots on the ground in China and you can help companies when they have issues like that, not only to source for potentially new suppliers, but also to address issues that they have in place, right? That's terrific. Mm -hmm. So we know also from the statistics, and as you mentioned before, a lot of companies are actually not leaving China, contrary to popular thought. So from the Reshoring Institute perspective, we see a lot of companies that are starting to develop alternate sources in the U.S., so that they're not dependent on a single source coming from China. So we do see some of that. Mm-hmm. But we know from the statistics that many, many companies are actually not leaving China, even though there are big tariffs and other sort of geopolitical and, you know, our, our countries are not exactly best friends anymore, uh, the U.S. and China. Yeah. But companies are making economic decisions and have indeed uh, decided to stay So what is your recommendation or what would you say about those companies that are staying in China? How should their management of suppliers or how should they work through you to maintain their presence there going forward? So, yeah, critical to have localization of management of that relationship. So, you know, again, goes back to quality and delivery. And we're in a really high demand environment right now. So, and if you look at what's happening in Eastern Europe, Ukraine is number four in terms of world supply of very strategic global natural resources. So we think we're going to continue to see shrinking material availability. You take Ukraine steel, Russian steel, Chinese steel together, that's that's a huge volume of, of just steel capacity. So materials, if you look at what we're seeing with material shortages since pre pandemic to today, Costs just continue to go up and up and up, and supply is going down, down, down. So working with it, that's with a, with a supplier involves making it getting very deep into discussion about their material supply like never before, so that when the client's orders come in, where are we in the pecking order? Did that capacity get get uh, freed up for somebody else who maybe is ordering more than we are? And so our team is there making sure that that order is in production and managed because the supplier may say, yeah, it's in production, it's in production. But unless you're there, you don't actually know whether it's your goods or somebody else's goods that are actually getting produced. So we are, we are there deep into material management. We're there during production to make sure that this, this is, this is the customer's order. It's being built to spec. The quality standards are being met. And then all the way through finish goes into a lock truck. So we're, we're just, so many clients want that extra hands-on support right now because we're in this high demand environment with, it, it's going to be with us for a while, especially again with capacity coming offline in Eastern Europe. Yeah, things have certainly been changing for sure the last couple of years. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time here, Jennifer. Do you have any closing thoughts? 
Anything else to add? Yeah. So, you know, as we talked about earlier, I lots of clients are still reliant on single source on one supplier. So there's there's that factor. When you look at risk, that that's a big factor is single source management. But there's all there's many other supply chain risks that we've we've learned a lot about on the logistics side, um, on the quality management side, on just geographical challenges. So when, when, when we come in and we engage, in addition to the business case, we do a supply chain risk assessment to figure out where, where are the, what's eating away at customer success, um, getting the, a quality product on the shelf at the right time, and how can we chip away at that over time with not just um, boots on the ground, quality management, but great logistics support, sourcing. Should we be for that for that assembly? Should we be looking at other subassembly options? Changing out materials. So, you know, our engineering team is making sure that from a materials management perspective, we're using the best possible materials. Maybe there's better cost of materials that could be used. So, when it comes to managing supply chain risk, starting with that assessment is is a good is, is, a, is a strategic option. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was great talking to you today. Lots of really good insights that we can all use. Really appreciate it. If uh, any of the listeners want to get in contact with you, can you give us your contact information? Yeah, thanks. It's Jennifer Clement, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-C-L-E-M-E-N-T, Jennifer.Clement at CompleteMad.com. So that's Complete, M-A-D, which stands for Manufacturing and Distribution.com. Well, terrific. Okay. And you can listen to more podcasts on women in manufacturing at our website, www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates at reshoringinstitute.org. Uh, and visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thanks so much again, Jennifer. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.